Good morning. I always enjoy singing songs that have a basis of story from Scripture. And if you're unfamiliar with that song, it's really based upon the story of Job. In fact, a lot of the phrases you give and take away are taken right out of the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. For those that are visiting, we've been doing a series called Life in the Trenches, and we looked at several individuals, Gideon, Hosea, Jeremiah, and this morning we're taking a look at Job. And while you turn to the book of Job, I want to begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we appreciate that we can open up Scripture together. Sometimes there are stories that we don't always want to hear, and this is one of those. At times it confuses us. Other times it inspires us. So I pray that your Spirit just teaches us this morning, and as we take this journey together in this world, may we understand that we keep our eyes fixed on you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The book of Job is part of what is called wisdom literature. And when you look at the original language of Hebrew, this is probably one of the finest pieces of literature by the way of poetry written in the Old Testament. There's very high language skills. And there's hundreds of words in this book that are still in question. And the reason they're in question is because they are used nowhere else. This is the only place that they are used. So it's kind of like what was really being written here. When you look at the story, we know it's a difficult story. And of course, the question we must ask is, what does it tell us about life? Now, down through the centuries, there's always been this philosophical question about evil and suffering and the question of why, and most of the questions have been reduced down from a human standpoint. So when it comes to the Christian faith, there's two prominent questions that philosophers ask. One is if God is all-powerful yet allows suffering, he must not be a God of love. That's their humanistic, rational thinking. Or two, if God is love, yet allows suffering, he must not be all-powerful. And so that philosophical argument goes down through century after century, and yet it's incomplete in terms of its questions and its arguments. Now, I want to read a rather lengthy quote from Oswald Chambers. He wrote a classic called, My Utmost for Its Highest. I enjoy reading people that are now dead. Uh, They have a lot of things to say to us. But listen to this quote. It's rather lengthy, but it's relevant in terms of everything we talked about and what we're talking about this morning. He writes, suppose God tells you to do something that is an enormous test of your common sense. Totally going against it. What will you do? Will you hold back? If you get into the habit of doing something physically, you will do it every time you are tested until you break the habit through sheer determination. And the same is true spiritually. Again and again, you will come right up to what Jesus wants, but every time you will turn back at the true point of testing until you are determined to abandon yourself to God in total surrender. 
Jesus demands that same unrestrained, adventurous spirit in those who have placed their trust in him. If a person is ever going to do anything worthwhile, there will be times when he must risk everything by his leap in the dark. In the spiritual realm, Jesus demands that you risk everything you hold onto or believe through common sense and leap by faith into what he says. And once you obey, you will immediately find out what he says is solidly consistent as common sense. By the test of common sense, Jesus Christ's statements may seem mad. But when you test them by the trial of faith, your findings will fill your spirit with the awesome fact that they are the very words of God. Trust completely in God, and when he brings you to a new opportunity of venture, offering it to you, see that you take it. We act like pagans in a crisis. Only one out of the entire crowd is daring enough to invest his faith in the character of God. Now let's turn to Job. I think that quote really is a good segue into this story. I'm going to be reading it, Job 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had ten kids. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. Now, the Jewish had this mindset that if you had children and had lots of children, you were very, very blessed. So 10 was not an unusual number. In fact, a lot of times it's 15 and even larger. Also, Job was very wealthy, and in their mindset, they considered that a blessing from God as well. Now, think about that mindset for a moment. And then think about our mindset. What do we consider being blessed? I think about our current culture, and most of our cars are designed for what? Two car seats. Two kids. Not ten. And if you drive one of those large, evil SUVs and haul around ten kids in it, you're condemned because you're creating this carbon footprint on our culture that they don't want you to. Think about how in our culture, this whole blessing is reduced just to stuff rather than family because it's so easy to end the life of a child through abortion. Now, I know all the arguments, but 98% of all abortions are done for sheer convenience. Not because of the threat of the mother, not because of the health of the mom. Think about how hard it is to adopt a child today. I mean, parentless children, and we have parents that want to open up their homes, but it costs tens of thousands of dollars and six months, year, two, three, four years. So do we view blessings in terms of family or stuff in our culture? Just consider that for a moment. Let's pick the story up at verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of 
each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So what you see here is a very close family that, depending upon the given day, seven days in a week, they'd be all gathering together for supper. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He'd rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this continually. Job was a very deep religious man. And he cares for himself and his family in things that mattered. Now I think one of the lessons we can learn here is that you look at our culture and you look at what we make sacrifices for. And today, parents make sacrifices for their children in terms of sports and stuff and education and all these kinds of things. And I have to ask, what are we, in, what are we unintentionally teaching them about life? And, and do we make the same investment in terms of their souls? And what we see Job doing here is valuing his family, that he makes sacrifices in terms of their souls. But today in our culture, we're willing to do all these things in terms of all these other kinds of things. But the soul stuff seems to get left by the wayside. Okay, just kind of catalog that there. Let's pick up at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, talking about angels. And Satan, who is an angel who's fallen, also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, by the way, just note who initiates the conversation here. It wasn't Satan, it was God. From where have you come? Satan answered to the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. Fill the conversation Satan has with God. He says, well, you know, I've been on reconnaissance. I've been out checking out the creation. And there's this almost smugness we see in his phraseology, in the words that he uses, kind of like looking at God and saying, you know, I'm pretty much in control. I am the prince and the ruler of this world. Verse 8. And so the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, is blameless, an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And it's kind of like God saying, oops, Satan, you missed one. You may think you have control, but look at Job. He worships me. He has his right priorities. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan says, you bribe this one, God. In fact, the only way you can get people is to bribe them. And the only way you can get people to love you is blessing, blessing, blessing. Satan says, I know the heart of man. I know what it's really like. You take away all his stuff, he will bail on you. He will curse you to your face. Now, we are presented with this question. What is at the core of our relationships? 
What is at the core of our relationship with God? Do we bail when things get tough? Do we go out looking for alternatives when things don't go our way? And think about the 20th century American church. I'm not talking about the rest of the world. I'm talking about the church in America. There's a subtle belief that when life gets rough, we have this crisis of faith. And we often advertise Christ this way on our radios and our books and our seminars and our movement. Come to God and you will have a comfortable lifestyle. Now the good news is that he will transform you. But, guess what? You're still going to have the people around you that were there before your conversion. And they may get worse. You're still going to have the circumstances that exist before your transformation, and it may get worse. But let's just note here for a moment, what do we learn about Satan here? We learn several things. He's numbered with the angels. He's a creature, a created being. His dominion is the earth. His principal work is what? To accuse, to make accusations. His name, in fact, one of his many names is Slanderer. Now, look at our culture for a moment. Look at our day and age. Think about how slander and accusation is a major form of communication. Think about how people today make the accusation and you have to prove your innocence. That is nothing short of satanic. It's divisive. It's violence. And if you don't believe me, let me use this illustration. Listen to any political whatever it is on the radio or TV today. What do they do? It's accusation, accusation, accusation. And it's so much to a degree that I watch friends who are friends, get all worked up about politics. And depending upon who they want to accuse, they literally divide their friendships over an election. Can't be friends with someone who's going to vote for that person. Of course, we even put it down to a statement that says, well, they can't be a Christian if they vote for that person. This kind of gossip this kind of accusation, we should never embrace it. We should never endorse it. We should never excuse it. We are a counterculture when it comes to our Christian faith. I was listening to a person who claimed to be an ex-satanic priest about a month ago. And one of his claims is that their groups go into churches and cause division. That is one of their intentional strategies. And of course, the question was, well, what methods do you use to divide churches? And he said, gossip. It's the power of accusation. We go in, we spread rumors, we spread lies, we spread accusations, and it takes hold and it destroys the church. So I guess the question this morning is, whose daddy do we look more like? Abba Father or slanderer? Now let's pick the story up. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. 
Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone had escaped to tell you. So a lot of his wealth was taken that day. But imagine this conversation. So he just heard that he just lost everything. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, you see what's happening here. There came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups, made a raid on the camels, took them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking... There came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So in these four conversations, he literally lost everything in a matter of 60 seconds. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped Very interesting response. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. We sang about that just before the message. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now I want to go through a few lessons, and I want to write the lessons as if Job was here. I want to put them in the first person. As if Job was telling us this. And here's the first. I think Job would tell us that I recognize that everything I have is the Lord's. We talk about this. We sing about this. We dedicate our children to this. Next week we're going to have a child dedication that really kind of says that same thing. In our marriage vows we commit to each other and God. But think about how we choose then to live with conditional commitments. Now, you've heard me say this before, attitude's everything. Of course, Paul's attitude we find in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we have to understand that attitude's a choice. It is not something that is imposed upon us. If we have a bad attitude, it's because we chose to have a bad attitude. In our American culture, it's so easy to ride the tide of current political correct emotional wave where attitudes are byproducts of what we choose to take in. And we have to understand that there is a lot of pressure to influence our attitudes. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of partial truths. Even in this story where one of the persons came down and their rendition was what? Well, you know, God sent this fire down. Again, let me go back to the illustration of abortion. We claim it's a political issue today. No, it's not. It's a moral issue. Did politics co-opt it? Absolutely. But at the heart of the issue, it's a moral issue that we have to decide. But all this should sound familiar because Satan, back in Genesis 3, at the very entrance of sin into this world, said, Did God really say that? 
And how many times right now in our political arena, in our religious arena, in our secular arena, are we hearing saying, well, you know, that, that's not really what God meant. And we couch everything purely from a humanistic standpoint rather than looking and worshiping before God and declaring that he is holy. Of course, Paul says, let this attitude be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And he talks about this selfless, joyful, humble service where he died on the cross. Second lesson I think Job would tell us is that grief is real and painful. We see him tearing his clothes. We see him wailing. In fact, the language used here is that he was sobbing uncontrollably, but everyone could hear Job. And there's two extremes he must fight against. I know some people, when they go through some horribly tragic things, they smile, they praise the Lord and said, oh, you know, hallelujah, my kid got run over by a drunk driver and killed. But I'm just happy in Jesus. No, it's okay to cry. It's okay to weep. Now, of course, the others where people get stuck and they never get away from their grief. You know, 15 years later, they're talking like it just happened yesterday. Both is where people get stuck. But I think Job would tell us that grief is very real and painful. In fact, when you read the entire story, you realize his friends sat at a distance around him because the wailing and sobbing was so intense, they just were quiet. And they waited till he subsided before they spoke their ignorance. I think another lesson Job would tell us is that evil will test you. That we live in a fallen world and bad things happen to good people. And again, we have to define what we mean by good people. Jesus had his crucible. It was a cross. And we are to be like Jesus. And when you think about Jesus, often when he spoke, people laughed. Why? Because what he had to say was too hard to hear. Rich young ruler comes to him one day, and they're having this conversation about eternal life. He puts his finger on his key idol. He says, I want you to sell everything, give it all away because it's mine anyway. And he leaves. He walks out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace. In fact, he coined that phrase. He lived during the Holocaust and chose to remain in Germany, chose to be righteous in the midst of evil, and it cost him his life in the final end. It even cost him his life in an unjust way because the war was finished, it was over, and Hitler had him killed and other political prisoners on his way out. I think Job would tell us that evil will test us in three ways. It'll test us with our possessions. And that can go either way. Sometimes it's the multitude of possessions in our hearts that keeps us from being spiritually where we should be. Other times when it's taken away, we refuse then to worship. It'll test us with our family. And while we're close and while we love and engage, our family is really held up before the Lord, isn't it? And it'll test us with our health. Later on, we find out that Joe goes back in the story and he says, listen, you let me touch him physically. You let me make his body hurt day in and day out and he will turn on you. And long-term painful conditions 
destroy hope. I think another lesson Job would tell us is that God is just and I will choose to worship him. And this is really the big what to do when life runs over you and you have no answers. And why is this important? Because we're designed for worship. And what and who we worship will come to our rescue when life falls apart. Again, I find this book fascinating. And when God finally chooses to speak in Job, I'll tell you what frustrates me. God never lets Job in on the conversation that I just read. God never says, Job, by the way, Satan came, you know, he's going to test you. I knew you would kind of go through this. Job never finds out about this conversation until he's face-to-face with Jesus. And I find that frustrating. I thought God would come along and say, Job, you know what? This is a test. Satan lost. You won. Great. You know, way to go. But he never lets him in on what happened. He never gives him a reason why it happens. And you know what we're like? We want reasons because reasons to us make it easier to deal with. None of that happens when God finally speaks. When God speaks, he just talks about who he is and who Job is. And what Job recognizes is that the highest good is to give God glory, to display his character as one of his created beings, as one of his children, as one of his sons and daughters. Now here's another lesson I think that we often miss because we're so time sensitive, that in the end, God restores everything beyond anything imaginable. Now again, we often miss this lesson because in the story, it's restored in Job's physical lifetime. But that's not how it's always played out. But yet, in terms of eternity, we know this. It is in Scripture. We know that our inheritance beyond this world, we could lose everything here. Stock market crash. Nations could come in, destroy America. We could lose our lives. We could lose our homes. We could lose everything. But in the final end, what happens? We are far richer than we could ever imagine. We will never suffer. There will be no more sin. Get a whole new life, get a whole new body. But so often we miss this incredibly unimaginable wealth that we have in Christ Jesus. But this story of Job is exactly that. We are born, we go through a world, and sometimes it is just absolutely devastating and and horrible. And we wish it would end, and there is an end, and God restores everything someday face to face. Paul writes it this way, because Paul understood it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So read this. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, because we're going to close with a song. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles... Again, a guy writing this is, what's happened to him? He's been thrown in prison. He's been beaten to the point of death. He's under persecution both outside of the church, inside of the church. Some days he has no idea where he's going to eat. Other days he has more than enough. 
For light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Because of this, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. See, that's what happens when God sets eternity in your soul. And that's why Job responded and worshipped. Everything changes. Let's pray. Father God, there's been some people who have gone through some pretty rough stuff this week. Through loss of loved ones, through diagnosis, through uncertainty in the future in terms of their health. Some have lost spouses, some have lost children, some have lost parents, grandparents. And we pray right now that your spirit just bring a peace and a comfort to them because um, grief is very real. It's hard to say goodbye. But I pray, too, for a vision of what is to come. We are eternal beings, and someday we will have everything restored. And while we long for that day, we long for you to come and just kind of clean this mess up. Until we see you face to face, may we not lose heart. But may we set our sighs on eternity, and may eternity be in our souls, and may we keep our priorities where they should be. May your spirit and your word lead us, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who who died a horrible death, but gave to us a glorious resurrection that we can navigate and live in this world and celebrate who you are and realize that someday we'll get to experience that in full restoration. To these things we pray and to this end we pray. And everyone said, amen.